Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gethard here. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. This is an episode I am so excited about. This is a bucket list moment for me. I am represented by Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. I am a huge fan of her and the job she does in my district. I greatly admire her and I still am so humbled and amazed that she agreed to be interviewed here on New Jersey is the World. Now I'll speak more to that in a moment. First of all, I want to say thanks to everybody who came out Wednesday night, Asbury Park House of Independence, as we honored the great Pete Genovese, who's written so many glowing words about New Jersey, one of the people who makes us love this state. Um, true chaos on stage. And thanks to everybody who's there to witness it. And if you want to come to our next show, it's June 1st. Tickets are already available, houseofindependence.com. We're putting on a 90s-era Jersey fashion show. Musical guest will be John Cos. We are so psyched. Get your tickets right now. You know who else joined us? House of Independence last Wednesday night. It was Lunar Fair. The month of May, New Jersey is the World, is brought to you by Lunar Fair. Lunar Fair is ostensibly a night market. It's twice a month. It revolves around the lunar cycle. But it's also infamously embracing witchery, but more important, weirdness and weirdos and giving them a place to go in this state. And guess what? They've got upcoming dates, uh, May 16th, May 29th, June 14th. Those are all in central Jersey. And then they have their big one year anniversary, June 28th. That's at the Sussex Fairgrounds. All of these are awesome. All of these are badass. Bonaduce has been to Lunar Fair, says it's so fun, so crazy. And I feel so lucky that we have linked up. And they are presenting the month of May here at New Jersey is the world. You go there, you buy art, or you pay people to do protection spells. If you're not, if you're if you're someone who just wants to go and, and participate in shopping at a night market, you can do that. If you're someone who wants to dive deep into spells, yeah, you can do that too, because this is New Jersey. And we go in a million different directions. I want to say uh, also, very proud this week that New Jersey's The World is being sponsored and presented by a strong woman-run organization such as Lunar Fair. I am very happy to be interviewing my congresswoman, um, someone on my leadership team who represents uh, so many things that I believe in and who is also a mom of daughters. I, th- I think between our sponsors... Being such strong women, between our interview subjects being a strong woman, it's worth pointing out that I truly, truly love that. Um, when I interviewed Congresswoman Cheryl, a few hours later was when the news came down about the Supreme Court's plans for Roe versus Wade. So even more so now than ever, I am really proud, feel very lucky to have congressional representation um, not just be another one of the crusty old white dudes that is everywhere in that chamber. And uh, much love to all the women in my life. Okay. Everybody, uh, at some point you're going to hear an ad. Our friends over at WNYC are running a great Jersey-themed uh, murder mystery podcast. They're running some advertisements in the middle. Otherwise, you're going to enjoy Mikey Sherrill without interruption. Now, if you don't know the story of Mikey Sherrill, oh, you are going to love it. Uh, you know the name Freelinghuysen. This is a political dynasty in New Jersey. Rodney Freelinghuysen was the representative of the 11th for a long time. And an upstart came along named Mikey Sherrill. And she ran a few years back. She's a former 
helicopter pilot in the Navy. She then went on to work in criminal justice through the uh, high, high ranking up there in the state. You can read all about her history. She's very cool. She took out a political dynasty. She raised so much money that he actually said, I think what I'm going to do is retire. And ever since then, she's now in one of these districts that uh, the Republicans would like to get back. And she is here as a Democrat, making it work, putting in the grind, putting in the hustle. We talk about all this and more. And as you can imagine, so often on the show, we talk about the fact that New Jersey is so layered. There's so many types of people on top of each other. There's so many people close up interacting, even though they're from different walks of life, have different backgrounds, different religions, different opinions. And we really get into how the 11th Congressional District of New Jersey kind of tells the story of the whole country. You're going to hear some moments where Congresswoman Cheryl really lets her guard down in a way that I love. You're going to hear about some TV that she's enjoyed, and it blows my mind that she's seen it. You're going to hear her maybe use some language that you don't expect from our esteemed Congresswoman all the time. We're going to laugh about that. I'm going to ask about Instagram and how it affects her politics. I'm going to ask about this district. I'm going to ask about your housing costs. She's going to tell all of you her opinions on how hard she's fighting to help the costs of living in general. It's... It's a really good mix, I think, of the policies she fights for, as well as all of us being able to get a better sense of who she is. And I am a fanboy of hers. I'm not going to hide that. I don't want to be too blustery, but I just want to say, I am lucky that she represents me in the 11th. I think that if she was ever to represent the state on a broader scale, we'd all be lucky. I think if she was ever to wind up in a national position, the nation would be lucky. She is really someone who cares. I can tell you that. Last thing I'm going to say as part of this intro. There are times where you're going to hear that she's answering questions. She's laying out policies. She's laying out goals. And these are clearly things that she's said a number of times because she thinks very hard about them and she, and she fights for them. But what I can tell you is that the entire time, whether it was something that was more off the cuff, whether it was something where I can tell these are policy points that she's talked about before, she looked me right in the eye. There were moments where she was getting emotional talking about stuff that she's probably talked about a thousand times because she cares that much. When she's talking about where her constituents spend their money, the ways that that they have to raise their families in light of, of hardship and economic squeeze and all this, there were times where she was getting emotional. I go, you've thought about this every day a hundred times and you're still feeling that fire in your gut. Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill is as Jersey as anybody has ever met. And I have no qualms saying that I am proud to be a constituent of hers. And I hope you all enjoy hearing from truly just one of the most badass people I've ever met. Hi, everybody. Uh, Chris Gathard here. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. Uh, we had about a year ago, Governor Phil Murphy was on our podcast, which was crazy. Um, one of his aides reached out to us. And after that, people started saying to me, like, well, if you can get the governor, it seems like you can get anybody like who's your dream list and this is not an exaggeration i have long said my top three people in no particular order i was like springsteen obviously on our jersey podcast i said for an artist who grew up not feeling like he could be an artist kevin smith would be a big one and i have said without any exaggeration number three not necessarily in that order but the other dream guest would be my congresswoman mikey Shell. <laughs> and it's happening wow. so you're an esteemed I company have, i've never been in such esteemed company it's true i mean you are uh i am 
a resident of the 11th. I have admired you greatly. I hope you know it's, there's a lot to talk about today, but like I just uh, was talking to my friend Keith on the way down here. He lives in Montclair. I live out in Morris County. And I said, oh, I'm interviewing Congresswoman Cheryl. He was like, please tell her I love her. Like there, <laughs> there are people in this district who are so thrilled that you represent us. I'm one of them. So for anybody listening, I'm, I am, uh, I'm going to try to ask some questions that are interesting and not always easy questions, but I am also an avowed fan and grateful you're my rep. So thank you for everything you do. Well, thank you. And back at you, you know I love the Action Park documentary. <laughs> this was wild. You're so thrilled. I mean, I just, every once in a while, I, you know, I come across somebody who has some memories. I'm like, oh, did you see the documentary? So good. I did an event at, uh, it was in South Orange. I think, right, South Orange, Maplewood, the, yep. they, obviously Soma, people blend them together. But it was a get out the vote event, and I was so I showed up, and um, the people who invited me to be there, they said, "Is there anyone you want to meet?" I said, "Oh, I see that Congresswoman Cheryl's doing it. I'm a constituent. I'd love to say hello and thanks." And they were like, "Okay, we'll see what we can do." And then you came out, and you were like, "Oh, the water slide guy, Action Park guy," and I was like, "Oh my god, I said the f word so many times in that documentary. Oh, I was very and embarrassed." I've never heard it here in representing the. I'm sure, <laughs> but you, how dare you? You know what I mean, though. Like I said it's so many times I was like that's what okay that's what my congresswoman knows me for is I'm the guy who talked about like getting you know watching people break their bones on the uh, alpine slide oh good god um but I also I was so scared after that because I got quoted in the ledger it was a very it's been interesting for me to kind of get sucked into this world of the governor's office again reached out would you come say some things and I said okay so you want a comedian there and I said I was like it seems to me reading between the lines Maybe the night before the get out the vote thing, a comedian has some freedom to say things that a politician shouldn't right before the polls are up and running. They said, you get it. Like, maybe make a couple jokes. And I said a couple things about the governor's opponent. And then there was a brief window there where it looked like he had thrown a little bit more of a puncher's chance than we had anticipated. And I was quoted in the Star-Ledger. And I have to tell you, I was like, oh, I, I learned a lesson that day. I was like... I got to be careful what I say in the political realm because I was like, if this guy wins, my garbage might not get picked up anymore. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen if if, uh, if he wins because I got quoted for some of my cute little jokes that night. I was like, wow, okay. But then it all worked out. My garbage gets picked up, everybody. Okay, I'm going to ask you some questions that I'm sure you've heard versions of before and also because we are a comedy podcast, I'm sure some dumb ones. First thing I need to know What's Andy Kim like? He's my other crush, obviously, as far as... I have a vision in my head that you and him, like, get lunch together all the time and that, like, Jeff Van Drew is two tables down and he's, like, throwing you guys, like, little smirks and you're rolling your eyes. Like, dude, just go hang out with your new friends. Like, in my mind, that's what the the, the cafeteria is like in D.C. Well, Andy Kim is fantastic. We sit on the House Armed Services Committee together. And um, he's just an incredibly thoughtful person. And actually, oddly enough, um, and it had taken us too long to do it, we just got drinks together the other night down in D.C. So I nailed it. Yeah, so you did. You nailed, uh, now, Look at that. We didn't notice Van Drew. He could have been following us. We didn't in my mind, it's like, an, it's like an 80s movie where you're the Molly Ringwald, he's the John Cryer, and Van Drew is like the James Spader. Like he's like that. He plays that function in the '80s movie because he he uh, he ditched everybody. Ditched us. He ditched us. Um, okay, I'll stop asking dumb questions. I'll come back to more dumb questions. Here's the big one that I want to ask because the whole reason this podcast exists is because I'm completely fascinated with New Jersey. It's a very strange place, and I grew up in West Orange. Um, strange and wonderful. Strange and weird and wonderful and the best and hard to explain to people and misconstrued and. 
uh, unfairly maligned, all these things that I think you and I both believe. I want to ask, one of the things that we constantly come back to on the podcast, whether we're covering New Jersey's food or like us telling nostalgic stories of growing up in West Orange with me and my buddies there, we always loop around to the fact that it is one of the most diverse places and one of the smallest places. Everybody's on top of each other. It's one of New Jersey's greatest strengths, and it's the source of so many of the things we just said. Representing the 11th, your job is to effectively be the lone representative of that, because the 11th is a strange district. It really is. You've got portions of Sussex County. You've also got Montclair, which anyone who's heard of Montclair knows it's viewed as one of the progressive bastions of the state. Historically, it's always been the most artist-friendly part of Essex County. You've got people from all different stripes, right? Like even, I live in Morris County now. I live in an area that would probably be called, in the broad strokes, like the Reagan Republicans. But you've also just picked up Booton. I was in Booton a few months ago, saw a lot of Trump signs. Those are Republicans who think differently. I bet there are a lot of sections of the district where even the Democrats would go, the Maplewood Democrats and the Montclair Democrats are a different stripe of Democrat than some of the other sections that are probably more, our families are generations of union card carrying Democrats. They're not the same people. There's a diversity of thought as well. And I feel like it must be very stressful for you to have to say, I am the human assigned to represent that. When how do you represent that diversity of thought? Well, that is a great question, one I am constantly searching for the answer to and assessing as I go across the district, because I firmly believe there are so many things that unite us in the 11th district, and, and you've described it really well, right? Like some people call Montclair the People's Republic of Montclair, and you go out to Lake Hapat Kong, which I represent right now, and there are Trump flags in the marina. It's just a very broad mix of people, and yet, as you also sort of said, we're all New Jerseyans and we're all really special breed. I um, I laugh so many times because there is this perception of New Jersey and, and believe me, I shamelessly exploit it down in Washington <laughs> to just kind of speak my mind and, and, you know, if it goes a little too far I say, well, that's because I'm from New Jersey. Um, but, uh, you know, I came in fact, one of the memories I have, I was at the Library of Congress at an event and someone went to Senator Collins, the senator from Maine, and, and they said, oh, Senator, do you know Mikey Sherrill? She's the congresswoman from New Jersey. And she said something that we've all heard some version of outside of our state, right? Oh, well, there are some nice places in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm-hmm. Senator, I know, I, I live there. And she goes, oh, well, I was just trying to to compliment you. And I go, Senator, stop. You're making it worse, right? Like, we <laughs> we love our state, and it is it is not totally well understood. But here's, here's what unites us in the 11th District. Um, we all hate taxes, right? Like, yes. we hate taxes. We just, you can go to the most progressive places, or you can go to the most conservative places. And people understand that... Um, you know, we invest heavily in the nation's best public schools. And our students are all over the country doing fantastic things. It's a great investment. But we get punished for it with the state and local tax deduction cap, for example. We all want better infrastructure. I mean, so many people, as I mentioned, my district has a lot of, of the train lines that go into Manhattan. And so many people that do that commute 
every day. And believe me, now that people are kind of coming out of COVID thinking about that, they're thinking about, I'm not thinking I'm going to do that every day because it's so bad. You can't coach a soccer team. Um, after getting home from work, you might get out at 6, but by the time you get through all the rigmarole, you're home, you know, it's not till 7.30 or later if, if you get, you know, stuck. Um, we all want to make sure that um, our kids have, like, a great future. And we're all, right now, after the pandemic, really worried about our kids and, and what this meant and how can we make sure that all the struggles that they've had, all the ongoing struggles that our kids are still having, how can we as a community make sure they get through that? And I would also just finally kind of wrap that up with, and we all here in North Jersey feel like we're missing something in this country right now. There's a lack of togetherness, a lack of unity. And I heard that because of, of these commuters, so many people are closely attached to the events of 9-11 and have lost loved ones. And um, so as I went around to all of my towns uh, over the 20, you know, during the 20th anniversary this past fall, every single event I went to, people said some, some sort of form of, we were just so unified that day and we're not unified right now. So that's, that's something, I mean, we can, we can bring everybody together it is tough, but it is something like you mentioned. I am thinking about that constantly. What are those things that do unite us? And how do we as a community, as New Jerseyans, how do we move forward? I'm really glad that you dove right into a bunch of the issues that you see as those unifiers. It's one of the things I wanted to ask about because the cynical view of a district like this would be someone saying like, okay, it becomes a science experiment of how do you get more voters on your side than others than the other side and effectively represent 51% of the district. But the optimistic view is there's a real dialogue in the whole country right now of we are two separate divided countries. And on my best days, I look at places like the 11th District of Jersey and I go, oh no, that's not real. There are ways for us to all come together and get along. I can not have the same party affiliation as the person down the block with me, and we can still live on the same block and be kind to each other and have some common goals and use the same resources and have access to the same infrastructure. I have to imagine, I mean, like, obviously, things like January 6th are terrifying, and you were there. I can't imagine, you know, and you've, terrifying for you, and you've, you've literally been in the military. You've seen, you've seen things up close that would terrify most people. When you think of it, are you able to be that optimist who sees New Jersey as the type of place that should be an example for the rest of us? Because I see a state where I grew up with all different types of people, learning how to get along with all different types of people. I went to a high school in West Orange where when I, my freshman year in 1995, there were 40 different native languages spoken. That's a diversity that people try to strategize how to get today in 2022. I had it in 1995 because I grew up in West Orange, New Jersey. The optimist in me goes, I grew up in a place where it, it's wokeness is not like a demonized buzzword. We just grew up all respecting each other, all learning how to be. You might be in the same lunchroom as a millionaire's kid and someone who just immigrated from Haiti a month ago. And I know that because that was my lunchroom in West Orange. Are you able to stay optimistic when so much of the dialogue is the cynical side of it? So, like everyone else, I have my moments. I have those days. It was really hard in the aftermath of January 6th. I was on the floor. In fact, I was in the balcony area 
Um, we called the gallery because we were all spread out for COVID protocols that day. Um, and so I watched the floor being evacuated. In fact, I, I kind of <laughs> jokingly tell people, if you ever happen to be on the floor of the house and the Secret Service runs in and grabs the speaker off the dais and runs her out, that's a really good time <laughs> to leave the floor of the house. Don't be a knucklehead like me and say, oh, I think we can still get through this, right? Oh, my um, gosh. So, <laughs> oh, God. you know, so I stayed, there I was in the gallery and, and the, the floor was evacuated. And... Um, so I watched the floor be evacuated. We were actually the last group to get out of um, out of the the house out of the floor of the house because um, the pathways were blocked by people, as you've seen, you know, as a lot of people have seen through the videos of people going through the hallways. And in fact, when I finally was able to evacuate, I saw people um, down with their hands zip tied and on the floor, you know, protesters that the police had subdued, so we could egress and. I remember that so clearly because uh, Pramila Jayapal had just had knee surgery and and I was worried about her because, you know, she, I was worried she wasn't going to, her knee was going to give out um, and collapse. So I was kind of watching her and as we evacuated, I said, you know, do you need a hand? And so we were, we were kind of slowly making our way down and it just seemed like so many steps because we were afraid to go in the elevator because if the elevator opened onto a group of protesters, we we'd be in real trouble. So just floor after floor going down to, to try to make our way towards safety. Um, and that memory is seared in my brain. And what I don't, what I remember from that day is actually not fear. I remember just two, I, I remember two things. I remember heartbreak because to me, and, and, you know, I don't usually talk like this. I, I tell people at maybe events, but but I don't just with my neighbors say, you know, I, I feel like the Capitol building's sacred. But I do. I do. I really, I, I think it is um, just this image in my mind. I, I still, to this day, go to work there and think, holy shit, like I work in the Capitol. Like this is my office building. It's amazing. And it is, um, it is heartbreaking to think that that was attacked by Americans sent over by the President of the United States. That is heartbreaking to me. But the other thing that I felt that day was this sense of rage. How dare they? You know, how dare they, as Americans, not respect our democracy? You know, how dare they, with everything we know about our revolution, the people who've died, so that we are able to have the freedoms we have, how dare they? When we look at what Ukraine, the Ukrainian people are doing to fight for these rights, how dare they? When we just had, as we saw Trevor Noah the other night, make fun of the president and say, did you see that? I just made fun of the president of the United States and I'm not going to jail. And that's amazing and something to be respected. How dare they attack the Capitol? How dare they attack Congress? How dare they, how dare they attack our democracy? So I tell you all that to tell you that Yes, I understand why people are afraid and upset and angry and sometimes feel divided. But despite all of that, do I feel optimistic? I 100% feel optimistic. I am relentlessly optimistic about this country. I would never bet against this country. I think we can prevail. We have been through horrible times before, and we have prevailed. Because deep down, I really 
truly and deeply believe that there is more that unites us as Americans that divides us. And that sounds cliche. Even as I'm saying it, it sounds cliche, but I don't know how else to express it because I so deeply believe that our birthright is this democracy. And we all know, no matter how woke we are, that it's not perfect. And that while you can feel frustrated with our democracy, you still don't want to give it up, right? You still believe that in their very, even though they themselves were very flawed, that our founding fathers actually gave us the instruments to always make this country better and that we all have a responsibility to do that. And so I, yes, I'm so incredibly optimistic about what we can do. This is the first time, and to kind of change tracks just a little bit, this is the first time in decades that we've actually invested in the United States of America. I don't know about you, but before 2016, so before Trump, I, I, I felt the sense of inertia in this country. I felt this sense that, that for some reason, despite all the gifts that we have here, despite our education system and our economy and, and, and the diversity here, despite all of that, um, it felt like, like we couldn't get stuff accomplished, that everyone knew we needed, you know, I, if you look at criminal justice reform, people knew that a lot of that starts with investing in early childhood education. Um, people all knew that we needed to address our healthcare system and people shouldn't go bankrupt because they had a cancer. And we all knew that we needed to invest in our aging infrastructure and yet issue after issue after issue, we seem to be unable to address and right now we're addressing it. This is the first time in 20 years we've spent more on infrastructure than China. We were the first economy in the entire world to get back to our pre-COVID economy, and we were the first economy to surpass that. We are now at virtual, um, virtually zero unemployment. We have about a little over 3% unemployment. I mean, anyone who wants a job right now is, is generally able to find a job. And uh, if you don't know where to find one, come talk to me because all my businesses are telling me they need workers. So, I mean, this is the first time we've had these unemployment numbers since 1969. So. Yes, gas prices. Yes, I know. Uh, and we're working on those. And they, they've been coming down because of the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Yes, inflation. I have four kids, so believe me, I know what grocery prices are. But I do think that, that we have amazing gifts in this country. And I think now for the first time in decades, we are actually going to be realizing some of those gifts. Now, I find that very inspiring and very astounding. And I also, I wonder what your perspective is. Why do we hear so much about gas prices and so little about best unemployment numbers since 1969? Like, I'm a pretty well-read guy, and I read up on this. And to hear 19... This, that's the first I'm hearing that. And I'm one of the people who seeks out information. Why do we hear about gas and Joe Biden, like, right, all the stickers, the dumb stickers. I can say this. You probably are not allowed to say this. Those dumb stickers, people buying gas pumps, that's Joe Biden pointing and saying, I did that, and pointing at the gas price. And we don't hear all the facts and figures you just cited, which are hugely inspiring. Hearing, we're the first economy to get back to our pre-COVID numbers. No, we're the first one. That should be something that we should be throwing a ticker tape parade for, but instead we're mad about these cherry pack, pick, um, facts and figures. I don't ever want to sound like somebody who um, would use phrases, you know, I, I believe in the power of the media. I believe that it is a very important tool. I believe in so much of the good that they've done. But is it 
that gas prices get more clicks on places like Facebook and Twitter? Is it? It's so frustrating for you to be able to sit here and tell me it shouldn't take me sitting down with my own congresswoman to hear that said as simply as all the negative things that are said so simply every day, everywhere, online, all the time. It must drive you nuts, I have to imagine. <laughs> yes, it does drive me nuts. Um, and I think there is... Um, Yes, some of what I just said is is not that sexy or exciting, right? It's great news. It's optimistic. It makes you feel good. And I am very hopeful for our future, and it is good. But um, I remember um, someone came up to me and said, you know what we need, Mikey, is we we need a, a news outlet that's not paid, you know, doesn't make money by how many viewers they have. Um, and they just report the news, and they try very hard to report factual stuff. Like, you know, I think it's it's a it's a problem. Some of our news outlets are cable news programs, and and they're looking for viewership, and and it's a money making enterprise. And I said, well, we have that. It's called PBS, right? And yet, you look at the number of people that watch PBS versus the number of people that watch Fox News, which is the largest viewership. Um, obviously, being divisive you know, getting those stories of when people are disagreeing versus when people are coming together, that is, there's something in the human brain that just gets excited oh, that by that, dopamine, right? that addictive the dopamine dop- yeah, it's that addictive. Fox News will give you. It's addictive. My mom, I love yeah. my mom. She will probably be listening to this. She knows that my, my mom was a, uh, a, she was born in 1948 and she, there are so many things with my mom where she did and said so many things when I was growing up, where I look back and I'm so immensely proud, um, there were people on my block. There was a, an elderly woman on my block who asked my mom if we could stop bringing our black friends around the block, and my mom told her, never speak to me or anyone in my family again. My mom drew the line, and my mom now really loves the adrenaline kick of Fox News, and it's very confusing to me. And my mom, I have told that to my mom. She will probably be bummed that I'm saying it to you on this podcast, but she is one of that demographic of a... Uh, an elderly viewer who I think has has become inundated with entertaining news instead of newsworthy news, and it's a bummer. It well, and it's tough because I I do think while it provides some, you know, short term dopamine and excitement and stuff, and I I. I, you know, I've believe me, I've watched my share of political news that's slanted one way or the other, mm-hmm. um, and I, and sometimes you do just like to hear people agreeing with you. You know, especially if you're a mom with four kids during COVID, it's nice <laughs> to actually, yes. Yes. you know, hear people agreeing with you once in a while. So I get it, um, but in the long term, I think it just stresses us all out. I mean, so many people, I've I've spoken to a lot of mental health professionals because we're having a huge mental health crisis in this country in the aftermath of COVID. And so many of them, they say the first thing they say to their patients, and it doesn't matter if they're Democrats or Republicans or independents, they say, stop watching the news, Mm -hmm. right? Just take a step back, you know, take take a step back. And, um, And I think that's so true because it's so hard after you watch a news show that's reminding you of all the things that make you angry about the other political party, it's hard then to remember all the things you like about your neighbor, right? right. Who has the, the Trump or the Biden sign in their yard. Right. It's hard to remember that, hey, they're, you know, 
they they were great. They babysat my kid when I had to run to the grocery, and, and I was a mess. And they, you know, they picked up my newspapers when I was out and said, "Well, now I'm sounding like an old lady because nobody gets newspapers." But you know what I'm saying? I mean, like really great great people. Um, and I think it's you know it's been it's been a destructive time period. I think COVID has made things worse because we're not coming together with people who think differently from us. We're kind of in our homes, just online with all the people who think exactly like we do. And that's a problem. And um, and so I, I really, in, in thinking through, there's just so many concerns I have for the future. But one of the things I would love to see in this country is some form of national service. Um, and not just, you know, not just the draft. Yes, I, I am a veteran. I think serving in our military is wonderful. It's not for everyone. But some sort of service, uh, AmeriCorps or um, Teach for America or the Peace Corps, or some way where you come together with other people. And I'll tell you, you know, when I, w- I went to the Naval Academy, and when I think about that experience, I went to college with people from every state in the nation. Some people had been living overseas because their parents were serving overseas. And some of the people that went to the Naval Academy when I was there had come from our nation's most expensive, most elite public schools, I mean private schools. And some of the people that went to the Naval Academy, I bet half the reason they went there is because it was free and they couldn't have afforded to go anywhere else. And so you just had everyone. And then you go into the Navy, right? So, I mean, then you go to the Navy and then you see real diversity. Yeah, I bet. And, and people from everywhere in the country. And some people had you know, really nice upbringings, and some people had some of the most difficult circumstances I've come across. And we all came together, and we all, you know, were able to get our mission accomplished. I, I really didn't know in my squadron the, the political persuasion of a lot of the people in my squadron. And, and as I could kind of jokingly put during my campaign, I never said to anybody, whoa, the only person coming on my helicopter, you know, if you're not a registered Democrat, forget about it, right? Like, yeah. you know, we were all able, because we believed in the country, we believed in our mission, and we were able to do it. And I just think we also learned, I think, a lot of empathy. Because, quite frankly, if you are a young person who grows up in a nice family and goes to, you know, one of our great New Jersey schools because we have the best public education system in the nation. And, you know, and your parents are helpful. And if maybe you struggle a little, mom or dad gets you a tutor or tells you, you know, who to go see and gives you some some advice. And then maybe you do some internships in the summer because maybe mom and dad know some people who know people, right? Got a guy. And they get you a nice internship. And then you go to college and maybe they pay for it or maybe they help you figure out the loans and how you're going to do that and maybe they give you support and then you you graduate and you think you've pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps right yes right yes. and you have no understanding oh i love this of how other people have none of that and I they love are hearing you say this you so know, bluntly they're it's awesome like, they're like a $100 car repair away from having to drop out of college yeah. to get a job. And, and and so when you serve with people from all over our nation and from all different backgrounds, you, you do, I think, develop, or you should. Not every veteran I've worked with has developed it, but you should develop some sense of empathy for people across this country. I have to say, I have said similar things about growing up in West Orange, and I think a lot of people in New Jersey towns. I, like, we don't... There is not a premium on space here. 
it's rare if if you have an acre in North Jersey, you're doing gr- you are you are doing great. Most of us are amongst each other every day, and you develop that empathy. And I've actually said too, you learn to afford other people the breathing room to find their own dignity. That everyone's living with dignity. Everybody's trying to feed their kids. Everybody's trying to hold their heads up high. Get up, get ahead, put food on the table, and you quickly learn people are at different levels, and everybody's just trying to live with some dignity and get some momentum and get where they're going. And I think Jersey does teach you that very young. It's funny. I'm going to jump to a different question that I was going to maybe ask. It was on the maybe list. But hearing you say all this, it ties into something that I think really is happening in the district right now. Um, There's been this explosion with housing prices all over the country. And in North Jersey, it's insane because we're in the New York real estate market, right? Where even where I live out in Morris County, that's still kind of the outer edge of you can get on a train and be at Penn Station in an hour and change. Now, I know that I think the redistricting, I think you're representing West Orange right now, but come November, that will change. Um, But it's a, a really perfect example. It's the one I know best growing up there. There was just last week one of those New York Times Realty articles about West Orange. And I remember what happened with Maplewood after theirs. Now, it's not like the New York Times causes this to happen. The New York Times notices and accelerates these housing rates. But it was a similar one. And growing up in West Orange, I go, oh, here's one of these, a great place to live. You have access to the South Mountain Reservation, and you can get this size home for this amount of money. But I have to tell you, Congresswoman, I can read between the lines on these articles when I know the town well enough. And I go, oh, there's certain parts of towns where this is, the uptown where this is true. And there's a part of me that was getting very upset because the section my family lived in for three generations was not that part. And I have a lot of pride in where I'm from, but I'm going, how do we make sure that this real estate boom isn't only making people who are already homeowners wealthier and realtors wealthier? How do we make sure that this is making communities wealthier? Because there's a real danger that the haves already own their homes. The have-nots are just going to feel it harder. And that the class divide that a lot of towns in the 11th, there is, there's a good section of town, and then there's the section of town that's not that section. Of, you know, like I grew up in West Orange, up the hill, down the hill. Maplewood has always historically had maple good, maple hood. That's the phraseology that we attach to this. And there's all sorts of bad classist and racist and all sorts of stuff. I'm not tossing these things around too callously, but how do we make sure that this influx of housing money doesn't go haywire and just squeeze out poor people? Because it has the potential to do so. Yeah, I've been really concerned about that. And I have uh, tracked the real estate market of the area quite closely because my in-laws, unlike anyone else in the nation, are retired and just moved to New Jersey. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. what? Right? Um, yes. That's the, we, I know. If your kids graduate high school, you get the F out of here. That's the New Jersey I know, way. I know. So my husband's from California, and they were lifelong West Coasters. And um, they, uh, when we were in the middle of COVID, like so many families, we were struggling with childcare and, and all this stuff going on. And they decided to move out. God bless them. I know. I, I think it's, uh, I think some days, you know, they're thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> and some days they probably are like, you know, these kids were cuter when we just right. saw them for 10 days in a clip. Um, however, they've been really wonderful. In fact, um, I don't know how we would have done the past couple of years without them. And, um, and it is, 
I am just one of those people, um, even in the worst moments when we're, they were living with us for about six months as they were looking for a house and getting settled. And even when we were all ready to like probably, you know, just tear each other's throats out at some point, I just think it's so great to have family around. It's just awesome, you know, and, and the fact that my kids, you know, can go to their grandparents' house and, and um, get to know them and, and stuff. It's just been wonderful. But that said, it was really difficult because they were moving here during COVID when it's like every week housing prices went up. And, um, and they're on a fixed income. And, um, and you don't even take into account sometimes if you're somebody moving from New York or elsewhere that it's not just the sticker price, it's the taxes you're going to pay on top of that, which can be really, oh. really stiff. So, um, so a couple things. I, I worry a lot about that because, um, like I said, my in-laws ended up buying in West Orange. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, okay. um, and but it was, I mean, we lost a lot of, you know, uh, bidding wars on, on different places throughout the whole region. Um, and they were lucky. They have a great place. But um, we spent a lot more than we thought we would on it. I've heard in Montclair you shouldn't bid. If you're not going to bid $100,000 over the sticker price, don't show up to the open house. I've heard that it's I just mean, I assume it. it is $100,000 more expensive at minimum is I what I've that. heard. It's, I mean, it's crazy. wild. It is crazy. And um, so just imagine, you know, like I live in Montclair. If When I was an ensign in the Navy, there was nothing in Montclair I could have afforded. Nothing. I could never have lived. I, I could never have really lived there. Um and so, so many of our young people are just completely priced out of uh, many of the towns. Um, and then we have a lot of families who just really, you know, can't afford anything. And yet we have an affordable housing problem. Believe me, we've been looking at, you know, as we're trying to direct some congressional funding, we just um, directed it to Morristown Habitat um, so they can build a project, which is great. But again, you know, affordable housing is even at a premium and really difficult to find. Um, and so I think uh, I think several things. I think we really have to, to drive, if the housing prices are going up, we have to really drive the cost of living down. Um, we have to make sure that families have access to great preschool and great child care. Oh, and I have a three-year-old. You, so you know. Oh, my goodness. It's horrible. And it's Hard to find open horrible. spots. You have There's, to get on no wait lists before your kid's even born. If before like. you're, right. And so if you're a first-time parent, and, and, this, and a lot of this, you know, I'm sure not in your home, but in a lot of homes, this falls on the mom. Because, oh, you know, we've like, because I, you kind of... Um, you get the, traditionally, now we have a lot more men, and, and men, please please do this. We have a lot more men taking paternity leave, but, uh, you know, a couple, decade, a couple decades ago, it wasn't quite the case. So you get maternity leave, and you think, okay, well, I've had this baby, and I better start thinking. I, I, you know, I was really lucky, and I got six months, and I thought that was great, and so I start looking for child care. Oh, my gosh. You know, it was horrible. So if you could even find it, finding it alone was horrible. If you could even find it, um, the cost was horrible. I mean, there were years I spent more in childcare than I made. Like, I was paying to work. Like, it was a luxury. Yeah. And yet we know that, you know, if you, um, 
If you as a woman take off from the age of 26, say five years at the age of 26, that's a 20% hit over your lifetime earnings. Not just like the next 10 years, your lifetime earnings. So it's really important that we address uh, child care affordability, that we have great pre-K. I Again, um, I come from a background of criminal justice reform. And I asked a woman who had studied a lot of how you get better outcomes. She said, you know, what's so sad to me is you would not, if you could pick where you were putting your money, you wouldn't put $1 into the Bureau of Prisons. And yet that's where so much of our money goes. And I said, really, where would you put your money? She said, you're not going to believe it. And I thought she was going to say, like, after school, high, you know, after high school basketball programs or, you know, some rec league or something to keep kids occupied. She said, head start. She said the outcomes we get when kids have quality preschool, and you can see why, because that sets them up, right, for really, really liking school and feeling feeling valued there and feeling like they could do it, and it's great. So uh, that's another area that we have to address, Um, making sure that people can... You know, that we get these this inflation down. We do have to do that. The grocery prices are atrocious. Making sure that um, our infrastructure is great so people have the ability to get around if they don't have a car, for example. Um, and then making sure our jobs are paying a fair wage. And which, in New Jersey, people kept saying to me, are, are you going to support, you know, in Congress the $15 minimum wage? I was like... Well, yeah, New Jersey already does it. Why, you know, that's easy, right? Like, come on, uh, let's let's get there. So, making sure people have good wages, Um, and I just, I I just have to remind people too. um, Workers have lost so much bargaining power over the past several decades, Um, and and just to give you a sense of what I mean by that, my grandfather. uh, Finished World War II, and my family was really poor during before World War II. Um, they, my great grandfather had lost his job. They moved in with my great great grandparents on the farm. Um, and so my grandfather finished World War II. He um, had a baby, another one on the way, um, and so ended up getting a union job as a factory worker for General Motors at the Hamilton Fisher Auto Body Parts. And because of that, he was able to send all eight of his kids to Catholic school sent some of them to um, college, had great coverage for he and my grandmother when they started to need um, care. He didn't bankrupt the family doing it, had medical coverage. Um, And, you know, that is a lifestyle. My grandmother never worked after the war. That's just a lifestyle that seems almost unattainable, that kind of job. So I also think when we're thinking about good-paying jobs, we have to think about the role of unions, and how, how they need to be part of bargaining for workers and how we need to gain back more power for workers in this country. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. This, see, this is why so many of my friends, when I tell them I'm interviewing her, are like, please say, I, please tell her personally that I, well, I'm afraid, I, I mean, Keith Haskell, you, I have there, to love say, her. like for all your listeners, if you're bored, go watch the Action Park documentary. It's a lot, well, <laughs> that's a lot more fun. Let me ask you about this too. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, because it's funny because how would I say Hearing, I feel like just hearing pe- people just hearing you say, "Yeah, I watched that Action Park documentary." You all watched that. All of New Jersey, my life got real weird for a few months after that thing came out. I couldn't go anywhere in Jersey without people being like, "Yo, target that swing!" <laughs> all right, man. A couple with powerful political connections was murdered in their bedroom. The case was never solved. They couldn't have done a worse job if they intended to 
mess up that investigation. A botched investigation and New Jersey politics. I'm Nancy Solomon. Listen to Dead End, a New Jersey political murder mystery from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hearing you say that, at one point you you dropped the S word. You said shit at one point in this interview. That is not, you, you are, uh, there are other, I've wanted to ask you about this one for a while. Like your Instagram, I love it. I follow it, but so much of it is you being like, I went on a small business walk in Bloomfield today. It was great. Or like, here I am uh, visiting the Interfaith Food Pantry in Morris Plains. Great organization. Great. There's other Congress people where their Instagram is like a Instagrammy, like more of the Kardashian bent. And I'm not going to name names and I'm not throwing shade. These are people who tend to be from districts that are way blue or way red. Is there a part of you that there's, I've always wondered, like, is this part of your public image to be like, it's about what I do. It's about the business. You are a veteran. You are someone who worked in criminal justice. You're a serious person. You're a congressman. Or is there a part of you that goes, I'm not allowed to let my guard down like some of these other people because if I, like, I saw one congressperson uh, on Instagram just the other day, and this was not a bad thing, but someone was like, was answering questions on Instagram and someone said like, oh, your makeup looks great. Take us through a makeup tutorial. And I sit there and I go, I feel like if you did that, the Republican Party who's after your seat, they want it back so bad, would go, look at this big waste of time. Is there a party that feels like you can't let your guard down as much as some of your peers because you're in one of these districts that's perpetually going to be a hot seat, it looks like? So I, um, I it just... Uh, full disclosure, I don't come from a social media background. God, uh, I was like, bless you. That must, I wasn't that's one of the really, healthiest things you can I was, say. I wasn't really on social media much. I was a federal prosecutor, and so um, yeah, you know, I would talk to like FBI agents, and I would say, <laughs> "Now, what's your social?" Because if I wanted to put them on the stand, you know, now what's your social media presence? And I always wanted them to say, "I don't have one." You know, the minute they said I have a Facebook account, I'm like, "All right, well." What have you posted on that? You know, like, oh, gosh. Um, So to enter into Congress and have to really push that content out, um, and it's important so people can get a sense of what you're doing, and and that's how a lot of people get their news. Um, And I also, uh, I I feel like we could probably, we're just so busy trying to push out a lot of information, we could probably be a little more fun um, in our social media uh, and and yet um, we um, and yet I do feel like we have to be very thoughtful. So I always say like we could um, you know we could get we could probably be more fun, but I never want to be snarky. You know I just that's not me. I, I just I just don't want to. I want to get stuff done. I I do you know don't get me wrong. I'm in Jersey politics. I've gone toe to toe with people, and I'm sure I will again. But I just there is a gravity to the office. A little bit, um, maybe some people don't think so. But you know, after after some of what we've seen in office, but I like to think there's there's some gravity, and and I'm not sure there's room for um, too much snark uh, occasionally, occasionally. Um, but I also do feel like um, there are people in this district who will come to me and say, "I've never voted for a Democrat before in my life, but I voted for you." And oddly, I feel like that's a, you know, that's a level of trust they're putting in me. And, and what I hear when they say that is, I've, you know, everybody I know is a Republican. My mom and dad were Republicans. My brothers and sisters are Republicans. I've always voted Republican. 
I like what you said. And so I'm trusting you to do what you said in Washington. And, and I, want, I want to be able to tell my friends, I voted for you because you said you'd do this, and I want to be able to tell my friends you did it. And I'm not sure they want, you know, in my district, when they're placing that trust in me to really look after their interest, to see a lot of other things online, because this is a district that's not used to having, in many cases, in many parts of the district, a Democrat representing them. And I think they want some assurances that it's not as scary as all the attack ads that are run against me are. You know, they want to be able... I don't think think people in my district want to see... um, a lot of other things other than a kind of a somewhat serious. Now, like I said, I do think maybe sometimes, you know, the lighter side of things don't always well, come through, we, but, but we can I do all think t- it's important. You should know, before you get mad at your social media managers, we can all tell you're cool. Like, everybody, all your constituents <laughs> are like, we can, well, then, well, then I shouldn't like be mad a Navy, at my, a Navy I am fighter not, pilot then mom, I'm not going like, to be mad at anybody in my comms team if they have portrayed that I'm cool. We I'm all get that sense, that. but it's cool to hear you drop an S-bomb here and, and be like, yes, Mikey's allowed to do that too. And like, I, I will sometimes see these attack ads you speak of, or I will see in reading on, if I go to websites that have comments threads and, and it relates to political news, I will see that it's, and it's, in my opinion, call me conspiracy theorists pretty clear that there are people with an agenda who when your name comes up love to leave a comment and I'm going who's who's paying you to leave these comments and leave this dialogue and I will sit there and get mad on your behalf because you do stay out of that fray and you don't make things personal and they're trying to constantly and it drives me nuts as a constituent and I hope the other constituents of 11 again I know I, I everybody who listens knows where I lean politically I hope the other constituents smell the BS of that that a lot of your opponents try to make it a nonsense game and you're staying above the fray in a way that's not easy these days. So I appreciate hearing that that's part of your social media presence. I like it. Um, I think it's easy. If you're in a district, especially in the House, where you know, okay, it's the prime. Whoever, right, this is a deep red district. Well, then, yeah, you can go build a cult of personality and say actual conspiracy theories that are irresponsible to say as a congressperson. Your job is much harder because you got to make sure Maplewood's happy and Lake Apakong's happy. That's much harder than just I can spout off anything because everyone in my district is going to vote red no matter what. It is, or blue, you know? It's, it's, it's a harder job. So it's a good answer is what I'm saying. Oh, well, thank you. I have to ask you, because this is like a... A podcast for people who are very nerdy about their love of New Jersey. So you famously, um, uh, getting nervous. No, no, okay. no. It's All a right. thing. I'm, it's a thing. I'm <laughs> well, and it, it's about your human side too, because it's a very human moment. So you first ran against a guy named Rodney Freelingheisen. For anybody who doesn't know this story, and I think many people already do, but for anybody listening who doesn't know the full backstory. You might be going, oh, Freelinghuisen, I've heard that name. And it's like, well, yeah, because if you grew up in New Jersey, you've driven on Freelinghuisen Avenue on your way to the airport. If you went to Rutgers, you might have lived in Freelinghuisen Hall. It's one of the river dorms. Like, this is a name that's been around since the 1700s. So when you first ran, people viewed that as a real long shot. And then famously, and I've, I've, I, I, I think I told you this in South Orange, one, my neighbor across the street is someone who used to go to Freelinghuisen's office to protest because he was never doing any constituent outreach or town halls. And uh, it was someone who said, told me, oh, yeah, we, Mikey used to just be there with us, like, saying, like, why won't you come out and answer questions ever? Like, he was this distant member of a political dynasty. Famously, 
he, if I remember right, correct me if I'm wrong, you started generating buzz, you announced your fundraising figures, he said, I think maybe I'm going to actually step away and retire. Do you remember where you were at that moment? Because that's a game-changing moment. This goes from the long shot to like you are actually Rocky Balboa and you actually landed. You actually did in, in political terms. That must have been a moment where you went, oh my God, things just got real. I think this might happen. Do you remember that? Because that's a human moment where your whole life changes, right? Yes. So I would say, um, you know, first of all, um, I think I had never run for political office before. So I would say I was um, somewhat naive. And um, I remember the first piece of advice I got when I went to someone in politics and I said, um, I think I'm going to run for Congress in the 11th District of New Jersey. Do you have any advice for me? And he looked at me and he goes, run in the 7th District of New Jersey. (laughs) Because Hillary Clinton had won the 7th and and the chairman of appropriations was um, serving the 11th. And um, so I went ahead and ran. And and, um, I think it was um, right before I got in that... um, Chairman Freelingheisen had voted against the Affordable Care Act. And actually, and I hadn't even announced yet, this was like May of 2017. And that was just so important to people that I was hearing from that that's when I actually felt like I was going to win the race. And I hadn't even announced. (laughs) And so, again, very naive, very, very much shows you. But I was like, whoa, I said, that's not going to be okay. Like, like we really need to make sure that we're addressing health care. And so, um, but when he got out, I still, by that time, I think I was understanding more what we needed to do and how difficult it was going to be. And so while when he decided not to run, I certainly thought, wow, that's going to, that's going to be very helpful. By that time, I actually was feeling much more like, okay, we just have to, I just have to keep my head down, do the work. We'll see, because this is going to be a tough cycle. And and so oddly at that point I guess the more I learned by the time, you know, that was about uh, not quite a year later, I thought, you know, at that time I was kind of uh, I think a little more like, oh, this is this is a heavy lift and stuff. Um but I did that that was um that was a very surprising day because a lot of people say oh, a lot of people had said to me if he is going mm-hmm. to retire, he'll probably do it in January. Because a lot of people go home for the holidays and think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not going to do this again. And he didn't. And so I, I thought, okay, well, I guess, I guess this is going to be it. And then he, he decided to retire. It's so badass. It's one of my favorite stories. It's awesome. It's so cool. <laughs> I, that is very, like I said, that is very, I have a 16-year-old daughter, so I rarely feel badass. <laughs> but I thank you. <laughs> I bet. No, you should. It's one of those things, too, in, the, in politics, people's, it, you know, it's such a what have you done for me lately thing. And I hope people remember there's temptation, I feel like, for people to go, oh, um, moderate Democrats, like progressive constituents might go like more, more, more. And I, I hope people do remember, like, Mikey took out a Freelingheisen. They've been in New Jersey politics since the American Revolution. Like, we got to remember that. That's not an easy thing to do. Similarly, another thing I want to give you credit for is, like, since I've been riding New Jersey Transit, I've been hearing, oh, you know, these tunnels under the Hudson River are like a death trap. Like, I've been hearing that since I was a teenager. And you went and got funding for the Gateway Tunnel. Like, you went and, you went and actually made it happen after all these decades I've been hearing about it. 
And I just want, it's another thing where I'm like, hey, New Jersey, let's everybody remember, we've all just assumed that eventually those tunnels would fail and it would be a horrible disaster and we'd fix them then. And that we've all just kind of quietly been resigned to that. And you pretty recently went and said, like, oh, no, 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 I think what I'll do is maybe actually get the money so that doesn't happen. And it's the type of thing that happens and then we all instantly forget it because we want more and we want you to fix today's problem right now. So I just also want to say thank you for that because I've been assuming those, I've just always been kind of quietly prayed. I hope I'm not in this tunnel when it goes bad because everybody's saying it's going to happen. So kudos to you on that. Oh, thanks. I think, you know what I think is, is something that I've tried to do with constituents um, in the middle and constituents on the far left and constituents on the far right is just, you know, be honest. Just say, this is what I'm working on. And I've I've had people in my office who were furious with me for, for not agreeing to do something. Um, but over time, I think that people realize you know, that's not where they always want me to be. But when I say I'm going to do something, I'm, I'm not just giving it lip service. I'm not just saying, oh, you know, okay, super progressive person. Sure, I'll do that. And super conservative person. Yeah, I'll definitely work on that. I think people realize that when I say I'm going to work on something, I'm going to try to get it done for them. And, um, and that doesn't, that seems like kind of the baseline of what you should accept, expect from your elected yeah. leaders. But I do think um, there is a, a trust deficit in our politics. And I think that what people have, I hope, come to rely on from me, and I hope to continue to deliver that, is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I represent a very diverse difference district. I'm never going to agree with everyone and everything. It's, it's just simply not possible, even if I wanted to. Um, but I, I have told people what I care about, what I'm running on, and when people bring attention to something that they care very deeply about. I tell them what I think I can do. Sometimes I tell them what I can't do um, and or what I won't do and, and why I think that way. And, you know, like I said, I think over time that has really um, been something that people are appreciative of. I, you know, I, I, I like to... I like to think we can all kind of come together and agree on those things that, that are really important and, and make this state and this country better. And And I just... I will tell you, part of the reason I, I wanted to come on this podcast is because I do think, and I deeply believe this, and I have been made fun of for this in Washington, I think the 11th District of New Jersey is kind of ground zero for everything that's gone on in this country over the past several I years. I agree. I think the 10th and 11th, I mean, the, even the 10th has mm-hmm. a little bit has it in it but I think the 11th just I think those two in tandem tell a real story that everybody else is kind of seeing that we've all known for a while I, I think totally so too. agree I think so too and it's it's I think it relates to what I was saying before of my neighbor across the street had a sign during the 2020 election season that said I'm a Republican but not a fool vote Biden the, a person on the other side of the neighborhood had a big giant Trump flag I would say a tacky-sized flag. Just me personally, <laughs> I would say that flag was too big, uh, as many Trump flags are. It's, it's, and like I said, like I grew up with people who are Democrats who have a problem with social justice taking the, the lead. I have people where all they care about is social justice, and they're so passionate, and it's beautiful, and they all live within like a 25-minute drive of each other because they all live in the 11th and the 10th spread out. And I go, man, growing up here... 
there are so, there are times where I am sometimes. I wonder if you would agree with this. People will sometimes get mad at things, and I realize, oh, I find that confusing and silly that you want to ban this type of book. And I go, oh, not everybody grew up around everybody else. There are people who are just learning. There are people who are just talking to a whole subset of people that they only theoretically heard of before and are just meeting now. I go, oh, thank God I grew up in North Jersey because I went to school with kids from every background, every religion, every class, every... we all just learned really quickly. Oh, you have to learn how to you have to learn how to function around each other. It, sometimes I get confused. Oh, this is a problem for other people because other places are way more homogenous than this, way more sheltered than this. And I think you're so right about that. It makes me wonder too. You were talking about the trust deficit with politics, and then this comes up immediately. It's always fascinated me because New Jersey politics, to me, I feel like New Jersey politicians should kind of always be looked to as the canaries in the coal mine for how to deal with stuff like this. It makes sense to me. The stuff you've had to deal with, this stuff, you know, the image of Andy Kim representing South Jersey, who, you know, his own, his own, uh, South Jersey, which has kind of swung more right, and he's down there on his hands and knees cleaning up in the aftermath of January 6th. I just sit there, I go, that's hugely inspiring, it's beautiful, and I'm not shocked to learn that he is another New Jersey congressperson when I realize, when I put that together. Because, of course, it's the guy from Jersey who goes, I guess we start cleaning up now, let's get back to work. You know, I love that, I love that, and I mean it, it's, it's not bluster to me to say that. There's all these rumors about Governor Murphy having national ambitions. I won't ask you to speak to those. You know more than I do. But I look there. I go, man, this is a state where you can look around and go, yeah, you should vote for me. I know how to speak to farmers from Cumberland County. I know how to speak to commercial fishermen. I've dealt with the pharmaceutical industry. I've dealt with New York City. We've had to navigate Port Authority. I've dealt with Philly. I know how to deal with big cities. I know how to deal with the most remote farms. I know how to deal with everything in between. I know how to deal with, you know, you look at, the religious communities in Lakewood and in meeting their needs, and then the South Asian immigrant influx of Middlesex County and their need, like New Jersey, we've the muscles here are just so strong, but the trust deficit comes in because I think New Jersey's politics, political reputation nationally is more backroom deals, still hanging onto machine politics. We're the only state that still has the counties arrange the ballots in this weird way where. You don't even know about it when you grew up here and then you explain it to someone from another state and they go, wait, what? Like, some person at the county level gets to pick whose name gets the most shine? Like, what? How do you, how do you run if you're not picked by that person? You go, well, you kind of, it's a real uphill battle, it turns out. Do you think that New Jersey, and, and we're all sort of in love with it too, if I'm being honest, like, there's a real fascination with the Games of Throny side of this state. Do you think that that's a handicap for New Jersey politicians that we're still hanging on to this old school machine politics stuff. We hang on to it. It's a bummer to me. It might be a tough question for you to answer. New Jersey is just packed with politics in a way other states aren't. So we're the most densely populated state in the union. I represent 54 municipalities. Each municipality has... Uh, council people and a mayor and they have the commissioners and they have I mean they have state senators and state assembly people and federal people you know federal congress people and the senate and the governor and I it is just you go down to Washington and this has nothing to do with 
machine politics or not machine politics. This has to do with the density of politics in New Jersey. Yeah. You go down to Washington, and I mean, I my chief of staff, I tell her she has a little New Jersey mafia, right? Because yeah. she knows other chiefs of staff who work for congressional members from California and elsewhere from New Jersey, right? right? Because... So many of us are involved in politics. So many of our kids are involved in some election of a council person. Or I just heard one of my favorite stories, and I've been thinking of it today because today is Eid, the end of Ramadan. And, um, and so I was talking to some of my moss today because a little girl in my town, in Montclair, wrote a letter to the school board saying that kids should have Eid off for, to celebrate. And um, so she came to my office to ask one of my district directors who she knew uh, how she could do that. She and her dad came and said, like, what do I do? How do I engage in, in politics and democracy? And next thing you know, she's testifying before the school board. And, I mean, this is just the richness, really, of, of our political system here and our democracy at work. And, yes, there are towns that feel um, like uh, there are different people that are running different things, but... But I do have to say, there are also so many people that care so deeply about what goes on in our state and that are demonstrating democracy all the time. And I kind of love, people come to me all the time, how do I get involved in politics? I'm like, there are elections going on nonstop. Like if you want, you know, we have the off-year elections. We're one of the only states with these off-year elections. So when we saw what was going on in the country last November, we saw it because of Virginia and New Jersey. Right. right. Right? Like that's how that's how powerful the state is. We're talking about being the first in the nation for the presidential primary, which I think is a great idea. I, I mean it would be crazy, but it I'm just be, telling you, can which you imagine state it would has be more nuts. diversity. If they gave it to us first, it would be the decked out cars, the amount of <laughs> lawn signs, it would be nuts. But it, it would, would be, be good, good for, I would argue, good for the country. It would be good for the country because I am telling you, we have representatives in a small area where people could get around to all. I mean, the, the crazy thing about New Jersey to me is you can live in one town and the next town over, which is like a mile away, is completely different. Oh, it's right. Yeah. So you can talk to every community. You can see every, you can get back to Washington pretty quick, which other, you know, members of Congress probably get kind of annoyed at me about. They're like, "Oh, do, do you have a flight out?" I'm like, "I'm getting on the Acela." But uh, so I mean, you can really get around the state. You can yeah. hear from so many different people. Where, like I said, the most densely populated. You can draw crowds to really talk and hear about what different people feel what they care about. So I actually love the richness of the political system. I am saying that now. Ask me in a couple months sure. <laughs> when we are closer sure. to November and I'm tearing my hair out, then I might have a different answer. Because you, you also did come in as a little bit of an outsider to that whole system. Whereas there's a, like I, and again, people are doing their jobs and, and, and I like the jobs they do, but it's just so funny to me to realize like, oh, the more I learn about New Jersey politics, it's like, oh, Joe D from Essex County. That's a county politician, but he's a big deal. Brian Stack from Union City. I go, that's, you look at where that is on the ranking of the biggest cities in New Jersey. I go, he's a big deal. But then you also hear with Brian Stack, well, it's because his constituents love the job he does. So he keeps getting voted with these insane approval numbers. You go, man, New Jersey's weird. It's these little fiefdoms and these allies and, oh, Central Jersey is trying to scoop South Jersey on this and North Jersey's trying to, Chairman, you know, Chairman Jones is trying to make sure there's Essex County representation here. You go, Man, this is like a chessboard, and you get to watch it in real time, and it is 
so strange and so captivating. And God bless you for being a part of it, better you than me. This has been a joy. I've been, uh, I feel so lucky that I got to talk to you. And I, I just, I, I know I speak for myself. I, I, um, myself, my wife, a lot of my friends, thank God that we got Mikey Sherrill representing us is a statement that I have said and that I have heard and that I really mean. And I feel so lucky to have you. And I, uh, I can't wait to do my part to make sure that you remain my, my congresswoman because we are very, very lucky to have you. And I hope anybody listening, by all means, if you disagree, you can call in. Uh, I'll say the number in the outro, leave a voicemail endorsing someone else. If you're, if you're like a lunatic about it, it will not be aired, but we're allowed to have differing opinions. My opinion is anybody in the 11th should get to work, spread word. Congressman, Congresswoman Cheryl, we are so lucky to have you, and I was so lucky to have you here today. Well, thank you so much. I feel incredibly lucky to represent the 11th District of New Jersey. New Jersey's the world, so it's fantastic and and really honored to be on your show today. So thank you. Oh, a real joy, and I can't wait to get to work and, and help make it happen and tell everybody in my little repu- – I live amongst the Republicans. I'm going to keep telling those Reagan Republicans, look at Gateway Tunnels getting built. You guys wanted that too, okay? Do, do the right thing. Do the right thing. <laughs> thank she did you. right by you. You do right by her now. Can't wait. Thank you. I want to take a quick moment to thank our friends at Silverstream Studios in Montclair. That's where we recorded our interview with Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill. Silverstream Studios is a brand new space. Uh, it's really great if you have podcasting needs, get in touch with them. But also just check their business hours because they're out there selling fanzines and art and skateboard decks. And they're a gallery and a community space that's going to be holding events. Very cool stuff happening at Silverstream Studios in Montclair. Thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World is Chris Gethard, Nikki Bonaduce, Don Finelli, Andrea Quinn, Carson Cobb, and Mike D. New Jersey is the World is produced and edited by Carson Cobb, Mike D, and Andrea Quinn. You can find us online at New Jersey is the World and on Instagram at New Jersey is the World. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey is the World at 973-780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is the World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to Patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at BelowTheCollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World, where New Jersey is... <laughs>